Welcome, friends, to Season 2 of Freedom and Virtue, the podcast. Are we seeing the death of our civilization? That's a question that's on the minds of many. Join Ishmael today as he explores this important question. You're listening to Freedom and Virtue, the podcast. Welcome all of you to another edition of the Freedom and Virtue, the podcast. After a longer than expected pause due to both technical and personal reasons, we are back with you doing the podcast and I'm very excited of having this opportunity in this new year. The year 2020 is behind us, but you know the realities of life that we were experiencing are still living with us. They are still pursuing us, but we must move forward. I don't have to tell you about the virus or about the election. You all have been bombarded with information. The aftermath of the election, accusations of fraud, and serious events at our nation's capital are now consuming us. This is why I have decided not to directly discuss these events surrounding the election and what happened at the Capitol for now. Preliminarily, I attended an examination on my Facebook page, but after this sermon, I realized that I did not want to become another casualty of a war of information and misinformation, a casualty of a war informed by emotion, where the realm of reason escapes us. I don't want to be yet another loud mouth saying things that I really don't know fully about yet. I have never seen so much raw emotion, misinformation, reaction, anger, sadness, and fear combined. It is not possible at this stage to offer a reasoned, calm, and objective evaluation without it going into deaf ears, without being attacked or heralded based on emotional attachments to the idea that this guy is telling me what I want to hear. There is at play in the nation a type of Utopian syndrome, an extremist, extremist, projective stance where winning is what matters. This stance has a moralistic flavor, a righteous stance based on the conviction of having found the truth and sustained by the resulting missionary responsibility, responsibility of imposing that truth on others. Persuasion is no longer necessary. This is very interesting. We don't have to persuade. All we need is the power necessary to impose. Those who find themselves without the momentary political power are engulfed in a fortress stance, a circling of the wagons that invites isolation and even more extreme solutions. In the meantime, those whose momentary holding of power finds them on top want to impose their truth with abandon. 
silence an opposition deemed not worthy to be heard and impose heavy prices on the hoi polloi who simply cannot understand. This utopian syndrome has two sides to it. On the one hand, utopians who dream of a world with no problems, no problems that cannot be solved by intervention, if we only get rid of them. Or the other side, where suddenly they cannot find any solution. No solutions are available for us. Only the contemplation of doom in the horizon. A total conflagration that is being that we are being told that is coming because the others won the day. When the realm of emotion reigns, better tread lightly in finding answers. In practice, there are situations in which reality can be changed to conform to our premises. Yes, there are those instances. But there are at least as many situations in which nothing can be done about what happens now. Nothing can be done about the actual stage of affairs. Or at least nothing appears clearly before us as to proceed with the use of reason into action. The moment that a postulate like it should becomes more real than reality itself, change will be attempted where it cannot be achieved and where it would not even have to be attempted if it weren't because of the postulates. The premises we have postulated were not there in the first place. It is the should-be-this-way premise which is the problem and which requires change and not the way things are. In short, it seems that at this present moment it's very difficult to be reasonable about the events of the day and taking some time to ponder, to pray, to study, and to look for real solutions, or at least to propose solutions to the nation, is what the moment requires. I have to tell you, it has been difficult. It has been difficult to be heard. Even when you speak preliminarily, people read into your words what is not there. Even when you agree with people, but disagree momentarily in one area or the other, you become the enemy. And why? Because the emotions that are in the air are taking over and reason is now the prisoner of appetite. People are looking only to first order change. That is what is recommended. That is what is needed. The quick fix is what must be pursued. The easy explanation along the lines of ideology and political party is what people want to hear, as the hammering of our idealized universe into reality, when in reality only second-order change can lead to a solution and second-order change 
takes time. Pausing is not escaping. Pausing is our attempt at giving reason a chance and exercising the virtue of prudence, a virtue that many people often confuse with cowardice, but the virtue that the moment dictates. So, as we begin a new year, I see the need to reflect some about the state of our nation, the state of our nation, and even further, the state of our civilization in general, without a need to get into the minutia of the events of the moment. The civilization I refer to is the West, whose heritage of Greek philosophy, Roman law, and Christian faith indelibly marked it and attended the formation of the full panoply of liberties we enjoy today. It is rather apparent to me that the overarching realm of values that informed the classical principles of the founding and remained in place for most of our country's history is shattered. The values that once we took for granted are being challenged. They are being rejected. Understanding the antecedent factors and the ideas that attended the demise of our civilization, as we understood it, is necessary or might at least be useful, I believe, in moving forward. Some of us still believe that those broken values are worth saving, even if the realities on the ground might make us pessimistic about the future. I, of course, do not pretend to offer a comprehensive account, but a few comments might shine some light. One theory is that the very substance of our system has an inner energy that triggers its eventual destruction, or at least the possibility of its eventual destruction. After all, Lord Acton observed that liberty is the delicate fruit of a mature civilization. That is, there is a fragility to freedom, a fragility to liberty because it expands the realm of action of imperfect men, of sinful men, of broken men. We tend to bite the hand that feeds us and liberty is never secure. It is never in a steady state, always in need of expert cultivation. Are we the civilization that can do that? Are we up to the task of cultivating a new civilization of love, freedom, and virtue? The progress of liberty is always beset by its, by its enemies, and these enemies are within the walls of the city, and they have been there for a long time. We simply did not see them, or we refused to see the realities that were shattering the walls of the city. They seem to affirm the values that form liberty, 
but they have given those values a different countenance. That is so important. Those who were supposedly with us and affirming the values of liberty meant something different by those words. For example, there are those in public discourse today who frame religious liberty as a tool of oppression, a clever guise designed to protect the status of the powerful at the expense of the powerless. So, in the names of the freedom of our civilization, these fellow travelers in the road of freedom attack certain freedoms in the name of those freedoms, or at least in the generic name of a free civilization, they attack the freedoms that our civilization holds dear. And this is done as if the way they go about is the necessary development of the freedoms they now see as oppressive. But there might be other factors. For example, as the classical understanding of the freedoms of our society unfolded, some people began to change the meaning of words, and in a slow process of conforming to that new idea, the ones who held to the values of old at times immobilized. They were not up to the task of rescuing our civilization by insisting in the values of old in a way that was practical and attractive to new generations. Again, it might be simply that civilizations hold by a thread and freedom is very, very delicate. And it has within itself the germ of its own destruction. But others have proposed other factors, other ways of looking at the problem that attends our attention today. The early 20th century economist Joseph Schumpeter believed that technological capitalism was at the root of the degradation of values. This is a different twist in how the delicate fruit was made to be rotten. As technological capitalism creates a gale of creative destruction, in the words of Schumpeter, it is inevitable albeit only progressively, that traditional values are undermined. The very energies of technological capitalism challenge traditional values. Interestingly, it is the success of technological capitalism, said Schumpeter, in delivering what it promises that provokes a demise of one social order and brings about the advent of another. This sort of creative destruction applies to values. In delivering 
it provokes a demise of the social order. I have certain problems with the conclusions that some arrive at this, based on what it seems to be evident here, that capitalism delivers and at the same time destroys. Someone to turn back the clock when they hear this. They want to stomp technological progress and return to an idyllic notion of the past, one that seems to exist only in their longings. It was never that great society in the past. And they want to stomp on progress in the name of rescuing the values of old. What are some of these awful technological advancements that they talk about? Is it the train? It is the automobile and the plane? Before the mass production of automobiles, for example, most people lived in small farms and in small cities. Their entire existence, their whole lives were confined mostly to where they could walk to or their horse could carry them or where they could envision to start a small city, adjacent small city, and move forward. With better modes of transportation, the whole way of life was disrupted. There is no doubt about it. People could eventually see the world, expose their minds to other ways of seeing the world, to seeing reality, good and bad. In the past, you knew all your neighbors and have to put up with them or enjoy them till death. Why? Because you did not have the mobility that later came to fruition. Today, people rarely die where they were born. But is that intrinsically evil? Is that wrong? Was te the technological advancements produced by the new economic understanding on how to create and sustain progress wrong or bad simply because some effects could trigger a change in the social order? Is the human capacity to provide technology to improve mobility a bad thing? Well, I think that we can say that it is not bad. Now, as with all things that are neutral or good, men can instrumentally pervert them. But that was true before. For example, God made us free. Now we can freely choose evil. Would it have been better for God to have made us automatons without the capacity to choose for ourselves? Another example, if you can easily move troops, the prospects of aggressive war might heighten. It might also be more difficult to stay close to extended family and keep lasting friendships as it used to be. In other words, progress expands the capacity to choose and it inevitably provokes cultural and social change. But is change necessarily bad? Those who lament this state of affairs are the same type of people who challenge the existence of God because, after all, you know, 
He could have made us all blissfully good without the capacity to choose evil. They blame God for the freedom he gave us. I tend to find that line of thinking awfully lacking. Technological capitalism discovered the secret of sustained economic development for all, and that is positive in itself, even if this capacity disrupts modes of existence. If our values are perennial values, if our values are true, then they must adapt and survive these changes. If not, that means that those values were destined to end. They seem to falter and fail where they are needed the most, where men need to make more choices. If I had to make greater choices, I need those values to inform my choosing. If those values are what we say they are, they will be there for me to adapt to the changes, changing condi conditions of my existence. Fear of change is tyranny. Fear of change is oppressive. As the great late Michael Novak told us in the spirit of democratic capitalism, and I quote, democratic capitalism does not promise to eliminate sin. It is so to speak, the chief virtue of democratic capitalism that in giving rein to liberty, it allows tares to grow among the wheat. Its political economy is not destined for saints. It is destined for sinners, that is, for humans as they are. End of quote. I sighed for the realism which understands man well and offers ever fresher soil for virtue to flourish, even if it also provides ever newer possibilities for evil. To resist the dynamism of technological capitalism and fight it to be the culprit for the demise of values is folly. I don't want to Christianize capitalism either. I want to Christianize the culture. I want, to cap I want capitalism to remain the uncommitted, efficient, instrumental cause for men of virtue to become the efficient causes of a better society. Let's put the blame where the blame goes. It's on us. Novak again, and I quote, In the world as it is, humans as they are, are often and unavoidably enmeshed in lies, betrayals, injustices, and sinful energies of every sort. A political system based upon the expectation to eliminate that reality must necessarily end in disaster. End of quote. So, Technological capitalism is not the reason for the demise of our culture. It's not the reason for the demise of our values. It is instead the context 
the platform, the scenery in the drama of men choosing. So then, why are the values that inform our civilization faltering? In the constellation of reasons, we might find one that I will discuss later, and I believe that we are getting closer and closer to understanding why we are in the situation that we find ourselves today. And this we will discuss next time. Thank you for listening to Freedom and Virtue, the podcast. Now, learn more about the Freedom and Virtue Institute by visiting www.fvinstitute.org. Ishmael is also the author of the book, Not Tragically Colored. You can connect with him on the Freedom and Virtue Institute Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a positive review. Thanks. Until next time, stay engaged. I was thinking this was the way to go and